Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Travis Fisher. Travis, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jack. How are you doing? I'm doing outstanding. Do you know what I'm about to be up to? Um, no good? No, the opposite of that, good. You know why? Why? Because I am loading my family, which consists of my wife and my daughter, onto an RV, and we are going to drive said RV all the way across the country. That does sound pretty cool. It's not technically all the way across the country. We're going like out to Yellowstone, um, the Grand Canyon. We're not going all the way to California. You're going to avoid the left coast. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're avoiding it because I would love to go take my daughter to Yosemite and see the big sequoia trees and redwoods. But we can't do everything all at once. And gasoline in California. Sounds pretty expensive. That's true. That's true. But again, that's not the reason why. It's more a time crunch than anything else. Still, that's a lot of ground to cover. That sounds cool. It is. We're excited. Now, I bring this up. Well, one, to, I know you're always interested. You're always asking me, Jack, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's right. Which is weird to me, but you do. But secondly, this means I will not be available to do Power Hour episodes for most of July. So for our listening audience... Jack's Power Pack. Jack's Power Pack. We did one pre-recording, so we will we, we'll hear this this one, then we'll have one after that, and then we might take a couple of weeks off. Yeah, take a little break. Everybody so needs a break. So we're going to take Even a little Jack's break. Even Jack's Power Pack probably needs to rest from <laughs> right. time to time. So anyway, I just wanted to let everyone know that's what's going on. So for a couple of weeks in mid-July, we might not have a new episode, but you know that's a good opportunity to do. Wait, you're going to like... Task me with things? No, I'm going to task them with things. Oh. To go back and listen to some other ones, some of our highlights. We've done like 20 of these things so far. Yeah, we got some good stuff. So there you go. Now but we're, we're back uh, in August though, right? We are back in August. Okay, good. Now, I'm going to be excited. I'm going to bring new energy. I, don't, I felt like I've not brought enough energy to the podcast. I'm going to bring a new commitment to energy to the podcast in August. That's what I guarantee you and everyone in our listening audience. You heard it here first. Jack's power pack. He's going to come back even Extra more power. even more powerful than there before. You, there you go. Now, let's see. What's next on our agenda? Do you have any ideas? I got a lot of I got a lot of opinions. No. Let me just tell you. You need to tell people how to reach out to us. Oh, that's right. You can send us an email, thepowerhour at heritage.org. We'll read it. We'll respond to it. We'll take it into account. We won't always do exactly what you asked, but we will take it into account. We will take it into account and, and make an effort to do it. Now, I know some people have suggested some folks. We're trying to get them. If we haven't gotten them so far, that doesn't mean that we won't continue to try. So write it down. What's that email address? Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Very good. So let us know what you're thinking. I'm behind a couple of emails, but I'll get to everyone before I head out on this uh, RV trip. And then, uh, and then we'll, 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 we'll respond. Now, Travis, my friend, I have but one question for you. What's that, Jack? Are you down for the cold life? 
I think I am. I I, need, I might need you to elaborate a little bit, but I'm I'm at least intrigued. Do you dig coal? I don't mean mine. Like you know, the kids say, "Do you like coal?" <laughs> oh, like the when Trump had the hard hat and he was like, "Trump digs coal." Yes, like that. I I did appreciate that. I dug that. I'm gonna say this. I am not just down for the coal life. I dig coal. I like coal. I have people don't know this. I have a long history of being around coal. I grew up in uh, Western Maryland little town called Mount Savage, old coal mining town. It's where they built the first iron rail in America. You know why they were able to do that? Because they had coal. Shout out Mount Savage. Every time, The first time you told me you were from Mount Savage, I was like, of course Jack's from someplace called Savage. <laughs> Mount just, Savage. It just makes sense. I mean, Jack is a savage, just to be clear. Um, a tamed one. Now, growing up around coal, Mount Savage... Um, a lot of the culture there was around coal. Now, by the time I grew up, coal had been on the decline and manufacturing in that part of the world had been on the, on the decline. But I grew up around old coal mines where that was where I spent many of my days growing up. That's where we recreated. We rode motorcycles on these places. We, um, I don't know if this was the right thing to do, but I am who I am. I made it to almost 50. We swam in the summertime in the ponds that were at the coal mines, which, by the way, are the clearest water that I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, coal's always been a big part. I, I lived one other place when I was growing up in West Virginia, also a coal mining town. In fact, the richest, I lived on top of a mountain in West Virginia, if you can imagine such a thing. Mm -hmm. It was largely poverty stricken. Those with money, you know where they worked? Where? The coal mines. Hmm. Coal has been lifting people out of poverty for decades in this country. I'll take you, tell you one more. Some would say for centuries, Jack. For, yes, they would be correct, <laughs> and I would be wrong. I currently hunt um, as much as I possibly can. I I've love seen, it. I've seen the bear skin you know in the, uh, the backdrop. Your, your office at home is uh, <laughs> yes, there's it's got a, bear. a giant bear on the wall. Uh, do you know uh, that where I hunt is a reclaimed coal mine? I own 50 acres of reclaimed coal mine area, which is beautiful woods, teeming with game. You know, I didn't know you had all these ties to the coal industry. That's nice. I do have all these ties to the coal industry. And so anyway, it gets on my nerves that coal gets such a bad rap, which is just insane to me. It has, as we t talked about, has served America well and the world well. It's lifted literally millions, if not billions, of people out of poverty, provide, provided jobs in towns like Mount Savage, Maryland, supported communities like Mount Savage, shout out Mount Savage, and of course, people like to say that coal is dirty, and it's just not true. I tell you, it's not true. And we're going to learn more about that. A new modern coal plant is extremely efficient and very clean. To compare to coal's industry, to compare today's industry to yesterday's, is patently unfair and purposefully deceitful as far as I'm concerned. And that aggravates me. Producing energy with coal, literally like every other industrial process, has gotten cleaner over time. And denying Americans access to this critical resource and using its alleged environmental problems as a justification is just untenable to me. And it's even worse when this dynamic is used to stop developing nations from using coal. I was reading... Um, this write-out from the White House on Biden's 
recent meeting with the Prime Minister of India. Yeah. Talking about how they're all into windmills and everything. This, this, by the way, I have a short piece coming out on it. It's just scary. They promote this thing called um, the uh, the Life Proposal, which is this global effort to nudge everyone towards an environmental, environmentally sustainable lifestyle. It's just scary. But anyway, the point here is, here's a country that needs coal. They need hydrocarbons, and that they're pushing a developing country like that into this direction. No one should stand for it. Yet these global elitists love it. But rather than demonizing coal, I argue we need to celebrate it. And the first step to doing that is get the facts straight. So we're going to dive in a little deeper today into coal's uh, into coal in today's power hour. And you know what we have? I'll tell you. You don't even have to answer. I was going to guess we have the best person in America <laughs> to talk about this issue. How did you know that? Because you tend to say that, but you are also right when you we say it. We only bring the power We pack, only bring the best. The best people in America to talk about that. So that's why it is with great pleasure I introduce to you and to the, our listening audience, Michelle Bloodworth, president and CEO of America's Power, to today's Power Hour. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Atana. It's an honor for me to be here today. Well, we, we are so happy to have you. As, as I said, I have a long history. I've never... To- I've never toiled professionally in the coal mine, though I have, after a day of recreating as a youth, looked like I was toiling in the coal mine, which may be not the image you're looking to, well, but I'll was, tell you, it was, was a great gonna, way to grow up. I was going to say, I don't I don't have the family ties to coal that you do. I, I should note, though, I do have one cousin, Chauncey, who is a coal miner. Shout out to Chauncey. God, Chauncey is literally my favorite name in the world. I've never met, a cool name. I've never met a, a man named Chauncey. That I didn't like. I think that Chauncey is one of those names that by virtue of having it, it creates culturally these mechanisms that force someone to grow up and be a certain way. That is awesome. I mean, Chauncey is pretty cool. He's the only one that I know, my cousin. <laughs> there you go. Now I'm getting off track again. Michelle, I want to hear more <laughs> about, about your organization, America's Power. And how did you get to be the president and CEO of America's Power? Sure. So... um as many of you can tell, we'll make you guess what state I'm from after this. I'm not from New York City. Um, so I've been with uh, America's Power for about uh, six years. And ironically, my very first job as a mechanical engineer, War Eagle, I went to Auburn, uh, was designing coal-fired power plants for a southern company. And so it's kind of ironic. That's where I began my career, and that's where I am uh, today. So... America's Power is the only national uh, trade association who solely focuses on coal electricity and its supply chain. And so our members consist of electricity generators, coal producers, transportation companies, and manufacturers like a Caterpillar uh, who make either equipment for the coal plant itself or for the coal uh, mining industry. And uh, I ended up having this opportunity at America's Power, um, most of my career was in the natural gas industry. So both when shale gas kind of took off, I worked for a shale gas producer, I worked for a natural gas utility, I worked for a pipeline company, and then I worked for MISO, which is uh, a strange name, but they're a wholesale grid operator, which is responsible. It's one of the largest grid operators in the Midwest, um, which I... It used to be the Midwest Independent System Operator 
Everybody called it MISO, but now since it spreads into Canada, it stretches all the way from Canada all the way to the south of the U.S., so now it's the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator. We just got to spell out the terms here. Correct, correct, which MISO likes you to say their their correct name. Uh, But it gave me uh, a huge opportunity to learn about all resources and what it really takes for us to have reliable and affordable electricity. And as you guys probably know, right now we're in the midst of a sea change in the way in which we consume and produce power. But electricity is, it's so critical to everything we do, the trip you're going on, you know, businesses, consumers, and the economy. And I always love the quote of Jim Robb, who is the CEO of the North American Reliability Corporation. So they're responsible for ensuring the reliability of the bulk power system across the United States. And he always likes to say how our relationship with electricity is incredibly fundamental. And it's 7% of the economy, but it's the first 7% because without it, nothing else works. And so it's going to be important to everyone in the United States that as we go through this energy transition, that we don't get it wrong. Because again, you know, it's not just an inconvenience not to have electricity, but it's also a matter of life and death. And we've certainly seen what's happened in Texas and in other states, California, when people don't have electricity and don't really understand what it takes to keep those lights on. And I should clarify, I do have ties to the coal industry because I use electricity all the time. Very, very so, good point. Very good connection. We all do. But, yeah, it's not, it's not as obvious to all of us. But it should be. And that's why we're here talking about it. Michelle, could you talk to us a little bit about coal's role in providing electricity and maybe where it's come from, where it is? And then at some point we want to talk about, like, what are the threats to it and the threats, therefore, to all of those important things you were just talking about? So currently coal provides uh, about 20 percent of our electricity. And we've always supported uh, a genuine all-of-the-above energy strategy, not just one that has lip service, but one that also supports coal. Because we need, as you said, Jack, we, we need all resources, whether that's coal, nuclear, oil, natural gas, wind, solar. Because as we electrify this economy, we really need more dispatchable resources, baseload, coal, nuclear, uh, and even natural gas, as we go through this energy uh, transition. And coal certainly has been very affordable. Uh, It's got a lot of reliability attributes, all these essential reliability services that are necessary because they're big mass rotating equipment uh, that have on-site fuel. And so when you have a really, really cold winter, like we did during Storm Elliott, the coal fleet provided the majority of the increased incremental demand in order for when either the wind didn't blow or the sun didn't shine or we had interruptions in the natural gas supply system because a lot of things, a lot of uh, different industries use natural gas where coal is primarily used for power generation. Uh, It was able to fill those gaps. And so what is a, a concern certainly to not just myself but to electricity experts across the United States is that we are now in a period where we're headed toward a reliability crisis because about over 50% of the coal fleet has been retired. 
Some of that has been economic reasons. Some of that is uh, environmental regulations that we don't believe are sensible or flexible that have put a lot of cost on coal plant coal plants. And also just to me, it's kind of biased preferences because people don't understand the importance of the coal fleet, a lot of ESG pressure. Uh, but we feel like now that a lot of these electricity experts are warning that we are losing more coal plants than we can get constructed new capacity with the same value, the same attributes, that two-thirds of the country going into the summer at risk of blackout. I mean, that's unheard of in a country like the United States uh, of America. You talked a little bit about economic reasons. Having followed this for years, but not I don't have deep expertise in in coal in the coal industry on the on either the production or the mining side. I want to focus on the production side. Um, it seems to me that it's I'm not saying when you said it, but when 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 wind and renewable advocates argue that wind is, or that coal is going away because it's not economical, that seems disingenuous to me because two things are happening. And I'm wondering if this is correct, and if so, could you describe it? Um, there are external costs being placed on coal through regulation, um, unnecessary regulation, and other policy, um, other policy choices that inflate the cost of coal artificially. Simultaneously, those renewable sources are being subsidized to um, make them appear cheaper than what they are. And that when you combine those two things, yeah, in that world, coal is less economic than it otherwise would, or coal is not economic in some instances. But that's not a real world. That's a a policy constructed world. Right. Am I right? Am I wrong? Can we talk about that? Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. So one of the biggest challenges with the 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 coal plate. And he likes to hear that he's totally right. <laughs> we'll, well keep it tally. That's, that's only one time. I, I'm trying to keep up with the guest this time. We had a guest who said it mu must have been five times, and I only said it once, and he has never forgiven me. So, Jack, you're absolutely right. You did miss one thing, though, the mandates. There's and a state-level mandate. mandates. I wasn't, so I wasn't totally right. That's in the category of policies that are helping renewables yeah. and not helping coal at all. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, no, that's good. He, he just loves to hear that he's right. So when you think about, you know, delivered uh, coal prices, the fuel itself, coal prices have been relatively stable. You know, if you look at inflation adjusted, the delivered price of coal compared to 14 years ago, the delivered price of coal is actually lower than it was 14 years ago. You know, we have 300 years supply of coal. But when you have an administration who uh, certainly with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there are almost 400 million billion dollars in subsidies for clean energy, you know, coal, natural gas, they're, they're not given any subsidies. But it's not just the Inflation Reduction Act. You've had federal subsidies for wind and solar, which distort these wholesale electricity markets across the United States that need to send a market signal as to whether resources should continue to operate or incent new investment or retire. Uh, that has resulted in a lot of uneconomic, meaning coal plants that really were economic, but the market wasn't sending the right signal. Then on top of that, the biggest challenge that our industry and coal electricity is facing uh, today uh, is environmental regulations. And so the coal fleet 
you know, to date has already spent about $130 billion in advanced environmental controls. You know, whether that's scrubbers, wet scrubbers, dry scrubbers, precipitators, and they've reduced traditional pollutants by 90%. So, so you've got a very well environmentally controlled coal fleet. But unfortunately, because this administration's anti-fossil fuel and war on, on coal, you know, we've got six environmental regulations that are being pushed out in a very hasty, hurriedly way without understanding the reliability impact of what that could do if it basically requi requires and mandates the retirement of the re remaining coal fleet when we don't have technology. Then obviously that's why all these electricity experts are saying the pace of this transition needs to be gradual. We need to make sure that we have transformational technologies in place and generation constructed that can replace fossil fuel plants. And today, we just don't have that technology. One might even argue that um, government doesn't even need to, I mean, government has so many things to do, so many important things to do. It could, one could even argue, it can just leave this whole thing alone and that an energy okay. transition will occur when someone figures out how to make electricity and generate power more affordably and more cheaply than what has come before it, which is what has always happened and will continue to happen if the government would get out of the way. In fact, one might argue, I would, that by subsidizing preferred approaches, they really set this whole process back because it, it prevents capital from flowing to the best ideas and um, putting aside, I, I believe from a public policy standpoint, in a, a, a neutral fuel choice. Like, I don't think government should get involved in what, what, cho what choices are made. If there's a regulatory standard to set, then set the regulatory standard, let the market happen, and then a transition will happen at, organically in a way that allows all of the good things that you just said need to happen before a transition to happen to actually happen. So, Jack, Jack, are you saying the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has a political bias? Uh, I'm yeah. sh I'm shocked. Yeah. I actually so I I, I want to get into a few of these rules. We'll, we'll get into the details. Some of which might be boring, but they're important because it's not like we need all of the new rules. We already have a bunch of rules. We even had a lot of coal plants closed because of the MATS rule, which was the mercury and air toxic standard which ostensibly was to clean up mercury, and who doesn't want to do that? But you check into the weeds of the rules, and it says, oh, well, all the benefits from this rule are going to come from PM 2.5, which is fine particulate matter, which is controlled by a completely separate EPA standard. So we're already sort of in this bizarro world of EPA standards not really doing what they're supposed to be doing. That was 2015. What are a couple of the rules now? I, I I know you're you're deep in the weeds on all of them. I focused a little bit on the power plant greenhouse gas rule because that one's especially bad. Uh, but we've got it's like a shotgun blast of like you said six rules. What what which, which rules are you talking about? Well, so the to me the the most onerous uh, rule is is the clean power plan two point right. 
And then we have the ozone transport rule, which impacts 23 states. We had five of the largest grid operators say if that rule is finalized in its current form, we are going to have major reliability issues. EPA went ahead and finalized it. So on that rule, now obviously you have a lot of states who are litigating that rule, attorney generals, and there are a lot of industry that is also impacted. It's not just coal. It's coal and gas, and it's also large industrial manufacturing plants uh, are also impacted. You have a coal combustion residual rule. All these are not new rules. So they basically took all of the rules during the Obama administration when I mentioned that the coal industry and coal generators spent about $130 billion dollars they basically are either overturning states' implementation, they're taking authority away from the states, giving it back to the federal government, where the states were already implementing these rules in a way that was best for the environment and best for reliability and best for the consumers in which the state that they uh, reside. But the clean, then, then you have the match rule, which we have owners of power plants that invested a lot of money to comply with the original match rule. This one is even more stringent than the last one. But the carbon rule is the biggest overreach that we've seen. So many of you may not remember, but during the Obama administration, the EPA you know, tried to uh, finalize the 2015 clean power plant. And this Clean Power Plan 2.0, as EPA is calling the carbon rule, which they have just proposed, uh, is really to replace that rule. Well, that rule uh, was overturned by the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court said, you know, EPA, you have way overreached and you're trying to determine and transform an entire electricity grid that is not within your authority. There's certainly going to be a lot of litigation, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's a lot of money for consumers, for industry. When if this Environmental Protection Agency worked and listened to what the leading electricity experts are saying in the United States and worked with the industry to make sure that the rules were sensible, we're just asking EPA to do reliability assessments to make sure before you finalize the rules, not just us, CEOs of large PJM, you know, NERC, they're saying, please analyze and work with us because we, we do know how to ensure reliable electricity before you finalize these rules. And that just hasn't been happening. And that's why you have two of the FERC commissioners saying Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, we're headed toward a reliability crisis. You know, when at a Senate energy hearing, all four of those FERC commissioners, you know, whether they were a Democrat or Republican, when they were asked the question, do we still need coal electricity? Every single one of them said yes. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when I think about the, the interplay between the reality of, of what you do from an industry standpoint and the reality of what consumers deal with from a energy use standpoint, you we have what you just talked about with the clean power plan. Then you layer on top of that this new tailpipe rule, which is going to, if if successful, completely transform by virtue of government mandate or dictate more than mandate, um, the choices Americans have in terms of transportation. They're going to force people into electric vehicles. And that's going to put tremendous demands, uh, tremendous supply uh, pressure on you. And I don't know how that resolves itself absent um, 
mass blackouts, absent huge spikes in prices, absent, um, you know, the market will work. It will, <laughs> the market will cause huge price increases. It will, it will, uh, uh, the in the in avail the uh, new cars will not be available to to most people because they won't be able to afford them, and it's like all right there. It's it, you don't need you don't need Milton Friedman to explain the economics of this. Like even dumb Jack Spencer can like look at it and see that doesn't quite add up. Well, the the first step to addressing the problem is to admitting that we have a problem, and I think that is the fundamental thing that's wrong with the EPA regs is they do these regulatory impact analyses that don't admit the problem. They say, oh, we're going to mandate a bunch of EVs. So all the transportation energy is going to fall on the grid. Oh, we're going to shut down a bunch of power plants. We're going to do these two rules at the same time, and there's going to be no problems from either of them. I don't know how they can say that with a straight face, but they do. Uh, I'm obviously going to argue against it, but it's, it's, that, it's that kind of thing where like, we, we have to have an honest conversation about the actual impacts of the policy. We can't just... What the EPA is doing now, it's... It's kind of, I, I would say it's shameful in, in the way that they, they aren't being upfront with the American people about the, the effects of their rules. Yeah. And, and I'll go ahead, Michelle. Well, and I mean, the one thing about the, the carbon rule to me that is, is just so scary and unrealistic is, you know, they're basically requiring every coal plant in the United States is going to be impacted by this rule. Natural gas is also impacted to a little bit smaller impact. Coal has the largest impact. But they're requiring, you know, units. They're they're giving them less than three years. They they have to comply with this rule in 2030 with technology called carbon capture, utilization, and storage, or they have to co-fire with 40% natural gas. When that technology, there is not one coal plant or natural gas plant that has the type of carbon capture, sequestration storage, commercially viable. It hasn't been widely demonstrated. There's not one. Now, certainly we support technology, but it's it's expensive. It's going to take a lot of investment, investment that we've given to clean energy, and we really haven't spent on fossil fuels. And so this rule really, if it's finalized in its current form, it could cause all of the remaining coal fleet to be at risk of retirement in 2030 when that's when the grid operators are saying, given electrification, not just EVs, but buildings, you know, we want to convert natural gas to, to electric. So I'm, I'm going <clears> to <throat> go out on a limb here. This is me talking, not Michelle talking, obviously. The way I see this rule is they pretend like they're giving you three options. If you, if you own and operate a coal plant, they pretend like they're saying, we're flexible because you can either use green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced by renewables, basically. Um, you can use carbon capture, or you could just close down. Those are your three ways of complying. Um, the first two, despite the fact that the Clean Air Act says the technology must be adequately demonstrated, demonstrated, not we are trying to demonstrate it now, which is the case, those first two options are not on the table. So only... If you really want to comply with the rule, you're left with the third option, which is what they wanted all along, is basically, why don't you just close that? Continu continuing right. with the conversation, excluding Michelle, so she doesn't have to be associated with what I'm about to say. Right. This is just us I talking. This go, is not Michelle. I would go a step further and say, it's purposeful. They know, f first of all, 
requiring the sequestration, carbon capture and sequestration, they know will make it uneconomical. That it, that's just like a, a pretend thing, like saying, well, let's we'll let you on, do let's this. Let's pull on that thread for a moment. How do you store CO2 in the ground? And you what have, is to, the you have to pipe it somewhere where it actually will stay in the ground. And is that everywhere? No. And, what does and the can, li- you build, can you build a pipeline? No. What does the liability regime look like that manages all of that? I have no idea. Yeah, none, none of them do. because. And what do you get for it environmentally? Nothing. It's all a big freaking facade to put a spe- to, to advance an agenda. That's what it's all about. That's that we'll, we will we will bring Michelle back in here in a moment. Not just to advance an agenda, <laughs> but to pretend like they're giving right. you all sorts of optionality. Yeah. We're reasonable here. There's three options. All right. three options are perfectly fair game. Michelle, I'm just kidding. You're of course you're welcome to engage whenever you want. We just didn't. We 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 you know we we, we get a little. Not all, you know, we like to, we have thoughts on these things. That's all. So, I mean, let's say you're a 40 to 45 year old, you know, coal plant, but but you still have 15, 20 more years of, of life. You maintain it well. We have coal plants well over 65 years old. But to install CCUS, on average, it's about a billion dollars, a billion dollars. That's on top of all of the other environmental costs with all those other six rules or five rules. And then on top of that, a CCUS project from start to finish takes about nine years. They're only giving you three. You know, so coal plant owners and who obviously aren't getting enough revenue to pay for a billion and they don't have the huge subsidies, you know, that wind and solar have, you know, they're going to make that decision to close that coal plant. It's going to be a lot of stranded investment it's going to be a lot of jobs. I mean, all these small communities in coal mining, coal mining you know, states and, and localities, they depend on that revenue for school revenue for schools. And if we all want to have technology, whether it's CCUS or a different type of advanced coal technology, then we have to, we have to maintain that coal supply chain and all the industries that support coal electricity. And back to your point, you know, if you look at global greenhouse gas emissions and you look at the impact based on EPA's own analysis, it would reduce this this rule will reduce greenhouse gases less than one tenth of a percent because China has the largest coal fleet in the world. They're the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Well, you know what? For every coal plant that's retired, they're probably building two more new ones. Mm-hmm. They're building more just new coal plants than the entire U.S. coal fleet. So you could shut down every coal fleet in the United States, and it is not going to make a dent in greenhouse global gas emissions. But it will make a, a dent, a huge dent, um, in local economies. Correct. In, for local culture and for the national economy, energy security, all of these things. It has a real negative impact. And we've seen it. Like, this isn't theoretical. We see exactly what happens to these communities. Now, I'm a free market guy. I understand that industries come and go. Um, and and that is hard enough in and of itself. But whenever industries go because as a direct result of government policy, just no one should stand for it. Just no one should stand for it. And here, one of the problems we have with this one is that somehow as a nation, we've been collectively convinced or told or whatever, propagandized that coal is bad. Like, it's just bad. Like, everyone knows coal is bad. And therefore, when it goes away, like, 
yeah, you know, it's we'll, we'll, we'll let them build windmills. Like that's what they always want to do. We'll let them. We'll, we'll they'll build windmills. I'm like, it's the same as learn to code. It's and and that government is doing this to people. I don't know. It just seems crazy to me. It just seems crazy. And I mean, people don't really understand because we do need to put reliability and dependable power first. And again, I think all resources ha have a place. But intermittent resources, some people don't understand that a megawatt of coal or natural gas or nuclear is not the same as a megawatt of wind and solar. So coal plants are five times more dependable than wind, and they're twice as dependable as solar. So you have to add five to six times as many megawatts of wind to replace one megawatt of a fossil fuel that has retired. On top of that, they're intermittent. So when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we have to have those other baseload resources until other technology, which even battery storage right now, we don't have long duration battery storage. And so every electricity expert continues to say we cannot sustain the pace of these retirements or we are not going to be able to keep the lights on. Another aspect of all that is the, the, the physical footprint these different technologies take. Um, you know, wh wh where I do have some expertise, I guess, is on nuclear energy. So I always think in terms of nuclear power plants, but I'm sure it's similar with coal. The coal power plant, I'm sure, takes up a relatively similar footprint to a nuclear power plant. And when you compare what a nuclear coal power plant produces in terms of that footprint to what a solar, you know, the, the equivalent of solar production or wind production, especially if you go by actual production and not nameplate capacity, it's an unbelievable amount of land that those things take up. Correct. And so on top of the land, I mean, there's a lot of agricultural or community uh, and even environmentalists that are pushing back. They don't want those big wind farms that use yeah. lots of agricultural land. Uh, you know, same same thing with, with solar. And so there are a lot of projects that the administration is assuming is going to come online to replace, you know, from these environmental rules, these coal plants. That is really not occurring. But mm -hmm. coal plants also have transmission. Mm -hmm. So we haven't even talked about that. You know, according to many research electricity uh, experts like the Electric Power Research Institute, you know, we're probably going to have to double or triple if we want to get to the Biden administration, zero decarbonization of the power plant sector by 2035, you know, w which will be an upwards of, you know, it could be $700 billion if we're... Basically, they want to replace all fossil fuel. So we're going to have to add a million megawatts at a trillion dollars of wind and solar and battery storage if we're going to be able to replace all of that thermal generation. It's just not realistic or feasible. And we're either going to be paying it as a ratepayer in our high electricity bills or or in our in our taxes mm -hmm. from the federal government. Yeah. Or in the unavailability of electricity that we need. Correct. It's going to be a combination of all of those things, probably. Um, we're sort of running uh, towards the end of time. I want to talk a little bit about the future of coal and um, an optimistic future, if we could. Um, specifically, I'm curious, um, like, what what is the technological trajectory of coal and coal using coal as for power production if 
if it weren't for these rules. Because no, you know, I actually, Travis, you don't, might not. I, I dabbled in the coal industry for a little while. I don't think I knew that. I did. Um, but like su- super critical coal technologies, these things that are these really highly efficient burning technologies. I'm curious sort of what's the future and what could the future be? Yeah, so there are several supercritical uh, coal plants uh, in, in the United States. They are extremely efficient. They are extremely economical. And the largest reason why they are challenged is because of the massive cost of these environmental regulations. And then also because of state policy, state subsidies, again, forcing the early exit of resources that are going to be needed more in the future than they are even now as we electrify the economy. And so if this administration really understood the value and the role of that 300 years of of supply, um, there have been advances in coal plant technology. Maybe someday carbon capture and storage will be widely deployed if there's enough investment made into it. Um, But if with these environmental rules, it doesn't even give the technology time to be developed. Mm -hmm. As other countries realize they want affordable and reliable electricity, it's going to help their economy. It's going to make us not competitive Mm -hmm. with other parts of the world who continue to see the value in coal. We saw what happened in Germany. Mm -hmm. They're trying to bring back every coal plant that they had (laughs) mothballed because they don't have enough electricity and it's so expensive. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the German experience. It's, um, it's, I mean, it's not funny, funny, but there's something funny about it that um, that the <laughs> the the coal plants that or the they went to Russia to back up the renewables because the renewables didn't produce enough to get that were there to take place of the coal. And then when the natural gas went away, they had to come back to the coal to replace the natural gas that was replacing the renewables. And um, yeah. You can see us going down that same road, um, except I don't know where we're going to – I don't know who's going to backfill for us is the, is the problem. Correct. You know, and even, even during the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, you know, coal has always been an insurance policy when other fuels are not available or too expensive. And so natural gas demand certainly went up. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they were exporting a lot of LNG. We have a lot of LNG projects. We're supportive of that. But without coal, we don't have that insurance policy because coal prices remained stable Mm -hmm. even during that period. I mean, they went up a little bit, but over the long term, they've been very stable. So why get rid of something that's working and certainly is going to continue to be the backbone uh, of our electricity system and provide us with economic development? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're going to attract businesses to come to the United States... They need reliable and affordable electricity. How did coal, um, how has coal handled uh, general inflation? Has it sort of followed with with national inflation or has it been more stable? Um, it's, it's, I mean, coal mining costs have gone up, mm-hmm. you know, labor costs have gone up, mm-hmm. but it's pretty much tracked uh, mm-hmm. in inflation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I, on the theme of optimism about the future, I've already observed that people are a little bit upset about either how slow the transition is going, if you're a huge fan of the transition, 
Uh, and things like, well, yeah, you have the, the land use problems for wind and solar and for transmission. And I think the, the time that you need to plan and site and all this stuff just for a new transmission line, we're not building that much in terms of large interregional transmission lines, which is, of course, what everybody that's pro-transition really wants. Um, do you think as people hit those headwinds and realize how large the obstacles are, that then they start thinking in terms of, well, maybe it is unwise to go ahead and trash all these power plants that we are using and work perfectly well. And, you know, in terms of the policy, especially as the insurance policy, the hedge against other fuel prices and things like that, it's, I think it'll become more obvious how wise it is to keep your options open and actual all of the above policy as opposed to the, the forced transition. I think once people realize that the forced transition, no matter how hard you try to force it, it's still not easy. Um, I think people are going to start to come around and say, well, m maybe we should use the stuff that we have. And by the way, the amount of the fuel on U.S. soil is staggering. It is something like hundreds of years worth of current use rates. So it's not like we're running out. It's not like there is even necessarily an environmental problem. There's the even this is a very clean industrial process. So the higher the combustion temperatures and things like that, the cleaner the exhaust is it's sort of a I don't know if that's counterintuitive, but it was surprising to me. It's not like, like I wouldn't recommend that you go and burn uncontrolled coal inside your house. Um, there obviously is going to be some side effect. But the industrial process, incredibly clean, incredibly controlled. So I, I think people are going to wise up. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I think because, you know, on average, high-voltage transmission takes 17 years from start to finish because of permitting challenges, you know, I don't want it in my backyard. Even some environmentalists are against building uh, transmission. And so, you know, I think right now we're at that pressure point because I would say five years ago, many of these, you know, grid operators and electricity experts, they were saying, well, you know, this, this is going to be an issue 10 years, you know, down the road. We don't really need to worry about it now. But they are calling out big alarms they are filing comments with the Environmental Protection Agency saying these rules, the timelines, they need to be more flexible. They're requiring technology that is not commercially available. Our markets weren't designed to pay for a billion dollars on an environmental control project. They're just not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we also have had 12 coal plant owners because of these warnings to roll back retirement dates, you know, mm -hmm. saying, hey, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I've got solar and wind in the queue and it's like five years down the road. You know, I, st I still need this thermal generation. Mm -hmm. And so we were optimistic with the state of the art coal technology. The mining industry has invested lots of money in state of the art mining technology. So if we just had an environmental protection agency that, provide worked with the industry to ensure that their rules were not going to have unintended consequences then i would have i'd be optimistic about the outlook for coal electricity absolutely mm -hmm. i hope one of my concerns is is that the epa those who are currently running the epa are getting exactly what they want these aren't unintended consequences at all but to your your point michelle what we need i mean that's really what we need in this country is a government 
regulatory agencies who work with the people, who work with, with our industry, to do what they should be doing, protecting public health and safety and basing those decisions on sound science and getting the politics out of it, getting the agendas out of it. And I don't think even, you know, me, for whatever reason, like I get that we need some regulation. Yeah, I understand that. And it's just that I have such distrust of what the regulators want to do that it makes me be, be skeptical of anything they do because so much of it isn't, is, is so clearly not grounded to reality. Well, and they occasionally show their hand. So there was a quote, this is Gina McCarthy, the EPA administrator under Obama, said out loud in a moment of uh, beautiful candor that because the compliance deadlines for the match rule were so short, she basically said, look, even if we get overturned in court, which we won't because we have a beautiful rule and it's amazing, we've done a great job, um, which it was actually overturned. But she said, well, everybody complied anyways. We got what we wanted. That's what I'm worried about is is happening at EPA again. They're They're basically flooding the zone, coming up with all these rules, tight timelines, so even if the rule loses in court, which I don't want to speculate on that kind of thing, my gut level, my, my read of the rules is that they're so bad that there's some part of it is going to get overturned. I worry that they're basically going to get away with it because they've already forced compliance on a tight timeline. And the fact that that was like the stated goal of the previous of, of the Obama years, I'm seeing that again. That's that's what I'm concerned about here. Yeah. And I mean, it's. And in these six rules, I mean, they all have carrots, you know. So if you agree to retire by 2028 or 2026, then you don't have to spend that money. So they're all designed to either give people a carrot to retire early or penalize them so much in that cost that they'll retire anyway. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm always frank and honest, but I will be extra frank and honest right now. Um that has frustrated me from the industry side over the years is that it seems to me, and I'm not saying just the coal industry, but I would include the coal industry. Um, generally speaking, not anyone specifically in the coal industry, <laughs> uh, that they have been too willing to take the carrots um, because it, it felt like to me, not having ever been sat in a boardroom, um, that we'll take what we can get, breathe a little bit longer because we know the end is near. And that's what, it, and you see, I feel like I've seen that, you know, 10 years ago with, um, uh, what was the big coal plan 15 years ago? Um, they were supposed to build the coal plant that had carbon capture and sequestration. Camper, it was in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, what was the technology, what was the government program? It had a, anyway, it doesn't matter. I've just seen this time and again, the, that people are tempted by the carrots and that ends up setting us all back through, through that. Um, and it's not just coal. I'm talking the 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 traditional energy industry broadly, and you know. But I get I get where well, they're coming it, from. It, it's terrifying, though. I mean, this is this is if you're going up against the EPA. Yeah, I get it. I mean, they are basically like the strong arm of the government. They can essentially do what they want. So to fight back against them and say, actually, we think these rules are no good. We're gonna we're gonna fight against the substance of the rule. Then I, it's just this weird. We're in a weird paradigm where it's like. You you get hurt worse if you fight back. And I get, I, I've never once criticized industry. I, like, I, I didn't mean to sound critical there. I understand it. But when you're in the policy fight, it becomes a source of frustration because you want industry to stand up and say, hell no. And sometimes, anyway, that's just. That's I, and I, think, I mean, we've I, seen I a lot of. We're getting there, though, right? I, I hope I hope we're getting there. 
I definitely think now that we have the carbon rule, but but you're right. You know, in the past, industry to me was was a lot louder. Whether that was comments to the EPA, whether that was being public about the impact, whether that was reliability or cost. And because, you know, a lot of their boards are putting ESG pressure on them, you know, no, no, nobody really wants to be public about the, the reality. But because, you know, we had blackouts during Elliott in Kentucky, we had it in North Carolina, we had uh, them in MISO, we had them in the southeast. I mean, blackouts, mm-hmm. you know, shedding customers of their electricity use uh, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. You know, consumers to me are also, I mean, they expect and demand to have affordable and reliable electricity. And so we're hoping and and we have seen a lot of industry now saying, okay, these rules are really going to cause substantial impact to our competitiveness and to our ability to continue uh, to compete in, in the United States or globally. I'm going to go out on a limb here again, and I'm going to absolve Michelle once again. This is my thought, not associated with her at all. My, my concern is that if you if you placate the zealots, so the people who are so zealously anti-coal right now, placate them and say, okay, we'll agree to close everything. Sure, fine. They don't stop. They don't stop there. They're going to try to shut down every gas operation, every new gas pipeline. They've already tried to stop pretty much every new fossil anything. And then... I don't even know if you actually allow them to crush every source of fossil energy. Then what's next? I don't. I still nuclear. don't. I still don't think they stop. They crush nuclear. They crush. Then, then it's. Uh, I don't know where the line is for them, but I can assure you that if you ease up on the line, they just move it forward again and again and again. So I, I'm certainly in the camp of, let's stand up and fight now because it's not. It's not like if you roll over today, they're they're going to be easier on you. And so much progress has been made as we talked about. Coal is clean. Like coal, it's it's not your grandfather's coal industry. Coal is clean, even absent the carbon capture and sequestra- sequestration. Traditional pollutant pollutants are uh, the the air is so much cleaner now, and coal is a co- contributor to that clean air. Coal is affordable. There's no reason to try to demonize and force coal here's, out. Here's a stat that folks might not know because I didn't know this a few months ago. The U.S. has a tighter soot standard than Europe, than the EU. So the whole PM 2.5 stuff, like we're, mm-hmm. we have arguably the cleanest air in the world as a, as a nation of our size. It's, it's, I think it's pretty amazing. So yeah, yeah the, we've already made progress. It's not like the uh, imperative for clean air is the same as it was in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, we're sort of running up on our hour. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Power Hour. Is there anything that you wanted to... To mention that we didn't get to? No, just to call out, uh, and we'll share a copy with you guys. So we've put together a video really to raise raise awareness about the importance of reliability. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly the challenges and the concerns with the state of the reliability crisis in the United States to really try to educate uh, policymakers, state representative, utility commissioners, uh, consumers alike, uh, so they also will reach out to their governors, reach out to legislatures, reach out to state utility commissioners to really demand dependable power uh, first. But uh, this has been a great opportunity. I, I certainly have a tremendous amount of respect for the Heritage Foundation and for the both of you. 
And uh, we really appreciate your balanced approach uh, and allowing us an opportunity to talk today. Absolutely. Now, will there be a link to your video? Yes. All right. Yes. So we will make sure that we link to your video with the podcast. We, um, how can people find more about America's Power? Um, you can go to uh, our website, www.americaspower.org, and um, get all the information that you can, or uh, I can give you my contact information as well. All right. Very good. Travis, do you have any final words for the people? I just wanted to back up what Michelle was saying, and this is not a fringe issue anymore. This is not a grid nerd issue. I saw it actually on some on a cable news channel today. The NERC report is getting a lot of traction. It's getting a lot of eyeballs on this, this whole. Kind, it's kind of nerdy. It, Come on, it's on cable news. It must be cool if it's on cable news. But I mean, it is a fact. It is a fact agreed upon by the grid watchdog that two thirds of the U.S. is at risk of power outages this summer. Not 10 years from now, this summer, yeah. two-thirds. So let that sink in. This is a mainstream issue now. This isn't, you know, 10 years ago, I was warning about this, um, but it was on a longer time frame. We're, we're there now. We're here. So um, time to buckle up. The, uh, if, two, if, if we have massive blackouts, that will make it a very, very mainstream issue. I mean, it's, gonna, it, it's weird. Every summer, it's like we, we kind of roll the dice. Because we're not depending as much as we used to on the stuff that we know is going to be there. We sort of roll the dice and say, well, we hope we hope a lot of wind shows up. I know we're trying to shut this thing down, this podcast. I never let you shut but down the podcast as fast as you really want to. It's a really good point, though, because what these, what these policies do is they chip away at the margins. Chip away at the margins, margins, margins. And it all seems good until it's not. And then it collapses. It's the same thing as every big systemic collapse that you have that's caused by government. It's because they do these things that whenever you start with a strong system, it seems like you can do them until the tornado comes through or whatever the thing is. And then you have massive, uh, uh, this massive destructive event. And that's what we're headed toward. No question. Yeah, it's how we go broke. So, Slowly but, and then all of a but, sudden. But we can't end on that. The, the positive thing <laughs> is, is that people are beginning to recognize it, and all the coal plants haven't shut down. We've got 300 years of coal, hundreds of years of natural gas, more nuclear power than we know what to do with, and there's room in there for wind and solar if well, it makes sense. And to get back to the solution, look, we need to first acknowledge that there is a problem, yes. and then we can start talking about solutions. Exactly. Right. And because it's a government problem, it can be a government solution, and we will move on from that. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And as I always say, if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And even if you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis and Michelle, thank you both so much for making this Power Hour absolutely awesome. One of my favorite. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at where? The Power Hour at Heritage.org. There you go. Oh, and they can find us anywhere you find your podcast. Including do, do, Spotify. Yep. We're on iTunes. a very lucrative contract with Spotify, of course, because we're famous. Uh, <laughs> we, we are trying to get the Spotify just, contract. Just do a text search, Heritage Power Hour. It'll pop right up. There you go. I am going to be gone for a few weeks, and then I will see everyone in August. Thank you all. See you next time. Thank you.